Let's take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 10, which lies in a section that follows the trajectory of the divine promises of a Messiah. From the virgin-born Emmanuel of chapter 7, through the divine human King of Kings in chapter 9, to the culminating vision of chapter 11 that sees Messiah's rule. And set against that thrilling background is this chilling reminder of what is to happen before that day. What's important about this section is that it explains God's purpose of salvation for His people and also sets that, if you will, in the context of the function of the nations far off as they've been described in chapter 5, whom God uses as an instrument to discipline, to judge, to chastise, to educate, to get the attention of His own people. Really effectively, one of the things that we believe is that God rules the nations in the interests of His church. God rules the nations in the interests of His church. We might say today, because this is the direct uh, fulfillment of what Isaiah is saying, God rules the world in the, inst- for, in the interest of His church. And so in these verses we learn the full theological answer to the question of how these forces, brute forces, serve the purpose of God in establishing His rule over Zion in the kingdom of the Messiah. What we see here, three things. First, the sovereignty of God's purposes, the futility of human pride, and the indestructibility of God's church. First of all, the sovereignty of God's purposes. If you look at verses 5 to 19, the voice you're hearing, first of all, is the voice of Yahweh. He's expressing His righteous wrath and justified anger, and He's addressing Assyria. The first word translated ah in uh, the ESV is also translated woe elsewhere. It is uh, the, the word of the curse of God. And the, here the curse is, uh, is addressed to Assyria. Earlier it's been addressed to Judah, that is to the church. Now it's being addressed to Assyria. In chapter 6 it was addressed or it came out of the mouth of the prophet Isaiah and was addressed to himself. Woe is me. Under the curse am I. Why? Because he became conscious as he stood in the presence of a holy God that in the presence of God, he even as a prophet, even as a Jew, even as a follower of Yahweh, was under the curse of God or deserved the curse of God. But here I want you to notice that God is addressing Assyria. I want you to notice that Assyria in its actions in its designs as an empire, is placed within the framework of God's power and purpose. Earlier on, about three chapters earlier, Isaiah had been delivering a word to the king of Judah and had described Assyria as being God's hound. God whistles and Assyria comes. Actually, my dog doesn't do that. You could whistle 
their heart's content, the dog won't come. But some dogs are trained, so if you whistle, they come. And Assyria is God's hound. He whistles, and Assyria comes. Assyria is God's instrument, God's tool, God's rod is the description that we find here. And the galling thing, the ironic thing, of course, is that few of our chapters earlier, we find the people of God, we find the church of the day, headed up by Ahaz, putting its confidence in Assyria to come to its help, rather than to Yahweh to come to its help. So here we discover Assyria is the rod of God's anger. Against whom? Against his own church. Against his own people. And some people would have a problem. We read this and we, just th- we think for a moment, we try to, to work out how it could be that God could use such a wicked nation against his own people. And Isaiah makes two points. First of all, he does. And second of all, that the wicked nations that he uses, or the people that he uses who are wicked to judge his own church, are held accountable for their actions. You can see the sovereignty of God in the language that is used. Look at verse 6. I send him. I command him. This is God speaking. God sends him. God commands him. Assyria, this mighty empire, serves the purposes of God, plays into the hands of God. Look again at verse 6. The commission that Assyria has, I command him, I send him to take spoil and seize plunder. Isaiah had earlier prophesied to the people of Judah and had named his own son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, that's not going to be a popular name to name boys this year, I don't think. In Philadelphia, I do remember the year the movie Pocahontas came out, that there were little girls in Glasgow who were called Pocahontas. Can you? And the thing is, in Glasgow, it sounds like this, Pocahontas, which isn't exactly romantic. So, but, but nobody's going to be called, I hope, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. That's almost a church disciplinary offense to do that. But the name, means, the name means exactly what God sends Assyria to do, to take the spoil and seize the plunder. That's what those words mean. In other words, Assyria, no matter how much the Assyrian king thinks that he is serving his own interests, no matter how much he may think he is building his own empire and extending his own power, whatever he thinks, God is saying up front, Assyria is the rod of my anger to chastise and discipline my church. Now, this is a principle that is laid down here and that applies right throughout the history of the world, that God uses foreign powers, when it's Israel, foreign powers to discipline and chastise his people. Today we might think of the world and the various forces and threats that come, whether they're philosophical or doctrinal or physical even, and assault the church of God. Back in the 15th century, Martin Luther called Islam, which had reached the gates of Vienna and was uh, pushing the borders of Christian Europe, the rod of God, he called it the rod of God against an ungodly church. 
He even spelt out what he thought was the unique role of Islam as an earthly scourge in the hand of God to work repentance and to purify the Christian church. He saw Islam then as entirely bent on the business of aggression with sword and warfare against Christ, the Messiah, and those who belong to him. But Islam is only one of those forces that over history has come as an anti-Christian force. Islam devoured Christian nations. Islam silenced Christian voices. Islam marginalized Christian churches. And they're not the only force that has done that in the history of the world. Many forces have arisen that have been used by God as a rod against an ungodly church. And we as Christians, therefore, must not panic when we see things happening that disturb us, when we see forces afoot that seem to have as their goal the destruction of the church of God. For they may very well be in the hands of God, the rod of God, that forces us to realize that as a people we need to be trusting not in any external sense of our own security or our own importance or our own infallibility, but rather only upon God himself. If the assaults of the world drive us to our knees, if the assaults of the world make us look into the mirror of God's word and see whereby we have fallen short of God's glory, then the world has been used by God in order to teach the church. Here is the first principle, the sovereignty of God. In the sovereignty of God, those disturbances that assault the church are only ever a rod in God's hand. Number two, the futility of human pride. I said that the opening word here is famously an ominous curse word, woe or ah, a word of shocking introduction. I said it was earlier used of Judah, now it's being used of Assyria. Because this instrument in God's hands is also a tool in Satan's hands to inflict even greater damage on the people of God than God's original intention was. And Assyria had exceeded Yahweh's mandate. Its actions had overreached its commission. It had acted arrogantly and with total ruthlessness. Professor Brueggemann of uh, Princeton puts it like this, the chosen instrument has gotten too big for its imperial britches and has acted autonomously. And the language that Isaiah uses here and puts into the mouth of this king in verses 8 and following is language that you will find on royal records of the period and on public inscriptions of that period. This is the kind of boasting that you would have heard back then among the Assyrians. Look at verse 8. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? In other words, the very captains of my various units have got more power at their fingertips than the kings of these countries that I'm invading. It's a swelled head. It's pride and arrogance. And you notice how in verse 9 he lists 
his prizes, the cities that he's conquered. He's taking off these great cities of Kalno and Carchemish and Hamath and Arpad. And he's boasting that his lowliest commander is more powerful than those local kings and can upset them and destroy them. But I want you to notice the the charge that God is making against these people. Verse 11, the key verse. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? All of these cities, Kalno, Carchemish, Hamath, Arpet, Samaria, were going to fall before the Assyrians. Northern Israel, centered around Samaria, was going to disappear off the face of the map. Its people dispersed and lost in the masses of humanity. It was going to lose its identity. Assyria was going to be responsible for the demolition and destruction and elimination of a church. Northern Israel was a church. It had split away from southern Israel, from Judah, but it was still a church. It still belonged to God's people. God still addresses them as His people. And here they are, they're going to disappear. Why? Because the hand of God is against them. God is using the Assyrians to destroy the witness, to take away the light of northern Israel altogether, and to scrub it out altogether. Do you remember Jesus threatens to do that to the churches in Revelation? That if you don't repent, what's he going to do? He's going to take away your candlestick. The candlestick of northern Israel is going to be removed entirely by the Assyrians. But here's the charge. The charge is that the king of Assyria thinks he can do to Jerusalem what he has done to Samaria and Carchemish and Hamath and Kalno. But Judah is, is God's intended vehicle of revelation to the world. God has a people there. God has promised that the Assyrians will not get Jerusalem. Later on, the Babylonians will, but God has promised that the Assyrians will not get Jerusalem. He will not utterly destroy Jerusalem. God has put a ring fence around them because they are God's covenant people. What is happening here is that these Assyrians, of course, are sinning against their own conscience and and their own light of revelation that they have. They're thinking the God of Judah is the same as the gods of the nations round about. That the God of Judah is no better than the idols that the Jews are worshipping alongside of the God of Judah. They have the assumption that he is no better, he is no powerful, he is no greater, he is no more holy than all these other miniature gods that these nations are following. And what are they doing? What are the Assyrians doing? Well, they're they're sinning against knowledge because it has been built into the conscience and the heart of every human being, wherever they are in the world, the knowledge of the one true God. And you have to suppress that knowledge in order to believe in idols. You have to suppress that knowledge that is built into the fabric and framework of the human being and human society. You have to put a lid on that knowledge in order to sin against God. The Assyrians are being held accountable. You notice this. The Assyrians who worship foreign gods are being held accountable to the only God there is because in worshiping these foreign gods, they are 
suppressing the knowledge of God that has been given to them and built into them. That racial memory of the one and true, uh, true and living God that all the nations of the world have to sin against in order to go down their path. Now, you think of it. You think of, for example, the forces that perhaps we face today. We, we think of people who uh, today uh, are, are driven not so much by the kind of paganism that you see back there with the Assyrians, but today they are driven by scientific materialism and atheism. There was a piece in, a, I think it was the New York Times, in which the writer was uh, not a Christian, but was cynically describing the, the kind of belief, the creed of uh, the new atheist movement. And he says, the creed of the new atheist movement is this. I don't believe in God, and I hate God. I don't believe in God, but I hate God. But isn't that interesting? Of course, that's the case. We don't want the God who is there. And what we discover here is that God is not impressed with the proud boast of this king. He may boast about the cities he's taken and the gods he's conquered, but he hasn't taken into account the mind of God and that his successes are only because he is the rod of God's anger and that one day he too will come under the hand of God's judgment. Look at verse 12, key verse. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. Do you see how that's written? Assyria is coming down and, and has demolished Syria without the ass. <laughs> Syria and then northern Israel. And now he comes down to Judah and he's transgressed into the territory of Judah and he's making his way towards Jerusalem, and he's causing a burnt earth policy to be implemented there in Judah. And he's heading towards Mount Zion and Jerusalem. And God says, when I have finished my work, when I have finished my work, Assyria is a tool, an instrument in the hand of God to accomplish the chastising of his people. Because Mount Zion and Jerusalem represent the church, the people of God. And God has a work to do in and with his church. In John Calvin's words, there are various diseases which the Lord determines to heal and remove from his church. And he uses outside forces. When the church was a nation, he used foreign powers. Today, God may use other outside forces. But the principle is this. God is so passionate about the holiness of his people and the holiness of his church that he will utilize forces outside of the church in order to achieve the purity that he seeks in his church. This is what's been going on worldwide as some of these child abuse cases have been emerging in the Roman church. And the litigators have been the rod of God against an ungodly church that will not deal with these sinful actions of its priests in the church. Isn't that so? And we shouldn't be too superior because wherever this goes on, God will use litigators. He will use 
demonstrators. He will use other people in order to get us to see our duty as the people of God. And God will use those to purify and cleanse his church. Assyria is the rod of God's anger. Calvin uses it in this way in his commentary, and he reminds us that God gives a free reign to tyrants and other forces, allows them to rage against the church because of her sins. Her sins, I'm quoting Calvin. They are his rod to purify his people. God will use them until they have accomplished his purpose. But the point here is this. If they think for one minute that the covenant Lord will give up completely on his covenant people, they are wrong. Listen to what Calvin says. He shall have made use of their agency in chastising the church. Then he will visit their pride and arrogance with his judgment. That doesn't mean the church gets off. But it means that they also have a day of reckoning. Now, do you see the sovereignty of God's work here? The work of the Assyrian was his work. Assyria, like every other nation and every other center of power in the world, is subject to the governance of God. The reality is that the Assyrians knew nothing. The king and the people of Judah would not put their trust in God, but put their trust in him, and he didn't realize that. He didn't realize. The king of Syria did not realize it. But the futility of human pride is this, that it will one day be silenced. There is a reckoning and there is an accounting going on even as we speak. Look at verses 13 and uh, following. These are the words, these are words that are captured that the king of Assyria is saying. And I want you to notice there's a record of these words. There's a day of accounting coming. The king of Assyria will be kept to these words. Listen to him as he speaks. By the strength of my hand, I've done it. By my wisdom, for I've understanding. I remove the boundaries of the people. What does that mean? That means I go and I break international order by removing national boundary markers. What's he doing? He's condemning himself. In his boasting, he's condemning himself. He doesn't know that somebody is hearing him. He doesn't know that God is registering his proud boast. God is taking notes of his proud boasting, and he's putting them in his record. And one day, the king of Assyria will be held accountable in the day of judgment. Didn't you say? Didn't you say? By the strength of my hand, I've done it. By my wisdom, I remove the boundaries. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the nations. Here he is like a little boy out in the fields discovering a nest, a bad little boy who sees the nest and sees the eggs and steals the eggs. And here is the proud king of Assyria saying to the people, I found their wealth like a little boy finds eggs in a nest. It was as simple and easy as that for me to take them, snatch them. God has registered it in his book. He has registered in his book one day. One day he will have to answer. See, this is the, this is the, fatal, the basic nature of human boasting. It is a fundamental failure to acknowledge that God is God and that God is listening. And that we have to reckon with God. He never thinks for a moment, the human boaster, that the God is the Lord of hosts. That he, is, that he is the Holy One. 
Here is the fatal flaw in human boasting. Evil men tend to claim too much. By the strength of my hand, I have done it. They, they get carried away with their own successes, with their own power and their own influence. They overreach themselves. When then their energies are dissipated and their ambitions thwarted. And what is the absolute futility of human boasting? Look at verse 15. Verse 15 is very clear. Here, here is the heart of it. Here you have the boasted, flaunted arrogance of the world. And what does God have to say to them? Look at verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself over him who wields it? As if a rod could wield him who lifts it. Well, it happens in cartoons, doesn't it? It happens in cartoons that the, the, the walking stick or the rod takes the person and begins bouncing them around. But in real life, that's not what happens. It's the living person who has the rod in his hand. God has the rod in his hand. In other words, what we're being told here is the sheer imp impudence, impertinence of man and his arrogance claiming independent power from God. Utter foolishness. Utter foolishness. And the final outcome for Assyria will be there'll be so few of them left, verse 19, that a child can jot down the number of people who are left. And from verse 28 to the end of the chapter, you have a description, really, of the fall of Assyria. Do you know what happened? They got as far as Jerusalem. They besieged the city of Jerusalem. And God sent a plague upon them, and they just melted away into the night. And it was all over. Assyria ended without any major great big battle. It just ended with a whimper. The futility of human pride. Sin always overreaches itself. Pride overreaches itself. You go to the cross on that first Good Friday, and there you see the Savior of the world pinned to that cross. And if you could only have seen what was going on in hell that day, I imagine in hell they were having a party. The drinks were flowing. The band was playing. The folks were dancing. The devil had never had it so good. He thought he had beaten God at last. He felt he had outwitted God at last. He felt that he had thrown in Jesus everything he could possibly muster and arrange and organize and there he was on a cross. Satan knew he was cursed the minute they hung them on that cross. Satan knew that. Thought that was it. That was it. And he didn't realize that by Jesus being hung on that cross as the sinless Savior and bearing the curse as the sinless Savior on behalf of his own people, Jesus was actually stripping Satan of his power, demonstrating Satan has no grip on those for whom Christ was dying. Pride always overreaches itself. There's a lesson there, isn't there, for us? There's a lesson for us in the pride, whether it's in the ungodly or among the godly. Pride is something God will have none of it. He will not tolerate it in our hearts. Jesus made that clear. Whoever exalts himself will be brought down. 
James says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Well, is everything lost? Well, look at verse 17. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. The light that brings enlightenment, that shines into the hearts of his people, imparting life and nourishment to them, will one day consume the Assyrians. That's the way it is. You see, that's very harsh. That's a very harsh idea, isn't it? Judgment. And yet it's the New Testament that says our God is a consuming fire. It's in the New Testament that we discover there's coming a day when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting punishment on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The futility of human pride. The psalmist talks about this in Psalm 73. When he talks about the prospering of the wicked, behold, the wicked, the wicked are always at ease. The increase in riches. It makes me feel as if all my efforts to keep my heart clean have been a waste of time. And then the psalmist says, but... I went into the sanctuary of God one day, and I discerned their end. That is the end of the wicked. Well, the third thing in the passage is the indestructibility of divine grace. Although Israel will disappear from history, that is northern Israel, and Judah will be brought to the edge of total annihilation, all will not be lost. Because we read in verse 20 that there will be a remnant. That is, he's looking forward. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, there is an Israel within Israel. These people, do you notice, unlike Ahaz and the people of Ahaz's day, will not lean on him who struck them. That is, will not lean on the foreign powers, will not look outside of the church for their security or their help. Rather, what will they do? They will lean on the Lord. They lent on Assyria. Here they were surrounded by enemy nations. They thought, what can we do? We need to build an alliance with a greater power who come to our help, Assyria. But Assyria turned around and bit them. They lent on Assyria and it smote them. But there's coming a day, he says, in the future when they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. There's going to be a return, not just a return to the promised land, but a return to the Lord. They will lean on the Lord. There will be a conversion among the remnant of the Jews. And they will lean on the Lord. We used to sing an old hymn when I was growing up, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. They will lean on the Lord in that day. And you see here two things, I think. You see the election of God going on here. The promises of God are not failed. Salvation has been promised to the offspring of the woman who will bruise the serpent's head. And here comes the offspring. Here comes the believing remnant, the true Israel, the believing Israel. They return, do you notice, verse 21, 
What is going to be the feature of this remnant in the future, in those days? They will return to the mighty God. We have just had the mighty God introduced to us in chapter 9. The mighty God is the Messiah. They will return to God by returning to the Messiah. They will come to believe in the Messiah. The Apostle Paul understands this to mean that believing Jews in his day believed in the Messiah, as the Apostle Paul did. That there was an election according to grace, and that a remnant, a believing remnant of Israel would be saved. Paul uses the word saved. Because these people are not simply returning to the land, they're returning to the Lord. Therefore, they're being saved. Saved from judgment. They have eternal salvation. And he's shifting the focus to those who are in Christ. So there's election here, and there's salvation here, which means there's encouragement here. Look at verse 24. Be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod. He's saying to the true church, when there are forces assaulting you, there are probably things that you need to learn. When, when the world is pressing you, when cults, cults arise. Well, very often these cults emerge because we've not really been articulating some aspect of our Christian doctrine clearly enough. And we need to revisit it and re-articulate it in a clearer way. When Islam comes and it critiques the church in the West, maybe we need to listen and ask ourselves, to what degree have we as a church begun to imitate the ungodly aspects of our culture rather than our true godliness? When these various uh, assaults come from the media, or the litigation comes, or whatever it may be, that comes and afflicts the church, one of the questions we have to ask, where have we been faithless? What have we done that has not been loyal to Christ, loyal to Christ, letting him be the ruler and guide of his church? But in spite of all of that, we're told, don't be afraid of this. Don't be afraid of this. It is a rod to discipline. It will not destroy the church of Jesus Christ. So here is this great picture, and I suppose the, the ultimate image that we take away from this whole passage is that as men and women, as the church of Jesus Christ, not only should we not be afraid of what's going on in the world and going on aimed at the church, but secondly, I think we need to learn from this passage is the utter futility of pride and boasting. Because the more we boast, the more it's registered in heaven. That's why this is in this passage. God is teaching us this. Our human boasting isn't lost. God hears it. And God will not have us glory in anything or anyone else than in Him. You remember these words of Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish those. Uh, sorry, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. My dad used to sing an old hymn. Not have I gotten, but what I've received. 
Grace has bestowed it, and I have believed. Boasting, excluded, pride, I abase. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. Only a sinner saved by grace. This be my story. To God be the glory. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. And at the end of the day, there is no greater comment that could be made, confession that could be uttered by the Christian church to the world than that we are collectively and individually only sinners saved by grace. Let's pray together. When there are so many destabilizing things in the world and questions in our minds, you seem, Father, to provide us with the necessary food in its season. And this morning, as we come to this passage, you remind us that at the heart of all that you are doing in the life of your church is your great plan to make us more like our humble servant, Savior, Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to deal gently with us, but deal with us till we see it and get it and do it to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.